Hello, I'm Brent Siddle, and this is the God Story Podcast. Well, this time we're joined once again by Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. We're talking about the book of Daniel, great subject, and we're up to chapter six, Daniel in the Lion's Den, a very, very well-known story indeed. But what's really behind all this? Well, let's find out. Alistair, welcome back to the show. Good to be back. Now, in this chapter, we've dealt with Nebuchadnezzar and we've dealt with um, Belshazzar, both of whom run Babylon or purport to. Uh, it's on their job description. And now we meet a third king called Darius the Mede. Now, who on earth is or was Darius the Mede? That is the big question. <laughs> there are many different theories on the subject. Um, my inclination is to say that he was Cyaxares II. He's mentioned in... Um, Xenophon, but not in Herodotus. So many um, secular scholars deny his existence, but he has been argued to be the figure historically by various Calvin argues that he's the person in view here. Think also of Carl Keel, James Bajan argues this, Paul Tanner, and a few others within the current context. But that would seem to me to be the most obvious contender. Others have suggested that Darius the Mede is the same person as Cyrus the Persian. So earlier on, we're told that Daniel served until the reign of Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. And so some have suggested that they are the same figure, that Darius the Mede is just another name for Cyrus. There was a descendant of Cyrus the Mede, of uh, Cyrus the Persian, who's Darius the Persian. We read of him in the books of, I think, Ezra and Nehemiah. So we have another figure who goes by this name as, as Darius the Persian. It's not the same figure. That's important. No one is really confusing those two. We also have other contenders. Some have suggested this was a general, Guburu. I'm not at all persuaded by that. He wouldn't have been in the same level, had the same sort of level of authority to command this sort of worship. He would not have been ruling long enough to go through all the process of having this sort of relationship with Daniel, setting him up, knowing him for long enough and um, having the 30 days of exclusive worship. All of those sorts of things seem to rule him out as a figure. So that would be my inclination. And this also relates to the question of how we understand the empire of the Medes and Persians. Because in scripture, we have in Daniel, um, in Jeremiah, and in Isaiah, the suggestion that the empire that takes over from Babylon is not the Persians directly, but the Medes and the Persians, and that the Medes and Persians are a confederacy, uh, least of equals, and even more probably within the scriptural representation, with the Medes in the lead position earlier on. Now, that conflicts with certain mainstream secular readings of the history in which Cyrus had beaten the Medes beforehand and then he was ruling over the whole of the, the Medes and Persians at this time and the Medes were not a ruling party within the confederacy. What this suggests is that there was a relationship between Cyaxares II and, and Cyrus, that Cyrus was the next in line, as it were. He was the Persian king, but um, this Median king was the one who was ruling until his death. And then on his death, 
Cyrus took the reins of everything. Yes. How does the rise of the Medea Persian Empire, if I can call it that, or the Medes and the Persians, how does that fit in with the empire statue that we looked at in Daniel chapter two? It comes at the second stage. It's the silver. So one thing we didn't notice mentioned last time, when it talks about the worshipping of the false gods, it talks about the way that he's worshipping the gods of silver and gold, which reverses the order. So it's the silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So if you're going down the statue, you'd go gold, silver, bronze, iron, etc., and clay. But this reverses the order. It suggests that the shoulders and the arms are going to take over, the chest is going to take over from the head. And so the kingdom of Babylon falls, the head of gold, and now this is the chest of silver that takes its place. And the chest of silver has two sides to it. Later on, we'll see another image of an animal with two sides, or higher on one side, and then that changing, and then again, um, two horns. And so there's a, a two-ness within the media Medo-Persian Empire, that I think also is justifying our reading of it as a true confederacy with the Medes as the prominent party in the earlier stage. And then after the death of Darius, it becomes one in which it's um, Cyrus and the Persians as the lead party. And yeah. so Darius seems to be name of a king. Um, it's not just, I mean, we can think about the way in which you can have a monarch that is named something different from their personal name that they have at their birth. So this is a throne name, I think. What actually happens in chapter six? So there's an attempt at an internal coup. There are a number of people who have been set up as the new regime. Daniel survives from the previous regime and indeed in very high favour. And he's set above all of the other figures, the three great officials and then the 120 satraps. And they are jealous of him, seek to remove him, but realize there's only one way in which they could do that. And that's by attacking him at this point of supposed weakness, which is his loyalty to his God. The fact that he would not compromise on that front. And that's been the case ever since the beginning of his story back in chapter one. His commitment to the worship of the Lord and to being faithful to him is something that sets him out apart. And so this plan to have 30 days where people would only ever worship the king was a perfect trap for him. And it was very clearly a trap. They were laying in wait for him. They were going out of their way to try and catch him. And the way that Daniel's praying, he's not making a public display of this. They're catching him because they know this is his practice and they've set this trap specifically for him. And so we should see that this is not just Daniel getting caught within a random decree. This decree has been created specifically with the purpose of getting trapping Daniel. And we can get into that a, a bit more in a moment, what's going on there. But then Daniel is thrown as a result of the decree, which cannot be broken, and much to the sorrow of the king, he's thrown into the lion's den. But the Lord shuts the mouths of the lions by his angels, by his angel, and delivers Daniel from the lion's den. As he's taken out, he's delivered the Lord is vindicated and declared to be the true God, and the those who had sought to destroy Daniel are themselves thrown into the, the lion's den. You mentioned uh, the, the whole thing is a setup, uh, a setup to trap Daniel, but is it, to what sense is Darius, and what sense is Darius also 
being set up by his advisors? In what sense is he a king being bullied by his advisors? The the scale of what's happening here, I think, really needs to be understood. We we tend to read this chapter and we've had the children's song, Dare to be a Daniel, and we have this in the background. It's very much being faithful when you're being persecuted for your faith at school or something like that. That's the these are the sorts of analogies that we have in mind. There's a king who's made this bad decree, and we have this guy who's unwittingly, uh, who's caught in the crossfire. The king doesn't realize what he's doing and the consequences of this. But we don't pay enough attention to the fact that this is an, inter- an internal coup. Daniel is the second in command. And these are people under Daniel who seek to remove Daniel by this clever plan. And so they're using the king's word and making him complicit unwittingly in bringing down this person that they really dislike, this person that the king himself has set up. So what they're trying to do is attack the king and attack his second in command. So the reason why there's such a severe response to their action later on has to do with this, that this is an attempt to overthrow the kingdom from within to gain power. The other thing we need to pay attention to is this continuing theme within the book of kings who are vast potentates who yet cannot control their courts. And so Nebuchadnezzar very early on can't trust his advisors. Um, He doesn't trust them. And so he gets them to interpret a dream that they have not heard because he doesn't really believe that they have the power to do so. They are not trusted by him. And in chapter three, we can see the manipulation of court, petty court rivalries, where again, people within the court are using the law of the king as a means to get their own back against people that they're envious of. And then again, in chapter four, they can't interpret for the king. There's this failure of language. And so language can be confused in people not understanding what others are saying. Um, so we can think about the writing on the wall. What does it mean? That question of interpretation. We can think also about the confusion of language as the confusion of the power of speech. And for kings, the power of speech is the power of command. And what we see here is the way that the king thinks he's the master of his word. If he speaks, that word goes and it binds everyone else. But here the word is separated from him and is used against him and ends up binding him in ways that he does not want. Now, of course, this is a contrast with our God, whose word is never separated from him. He speaks his word eternally, and that word is always with him, and he is with it. And so his authority is complete, whereas the authority of these kings, they set up their law thinking it's an extension of their authority, but it can come back and prove that it's, an, it's a power over them. And I think we find the same thing with our own words and works. We think, for instance, we control our technologies, but how much of our lives are ordered by our technologies that we think there are works, there are words, we're controlling them, but yet we're so often bound by them and in them. And so the king's attempt to control through his word, this word that cannot be broken, proves futile here. The Lord himself is the only one whose word will be established, and that's what we'll see very much in the back end of the book. In chapter 7 to 12. In what sense is this a chapter about the importance of governments writing good laws? Well, first of all, it's a, a warning about the danger of laws. Um, you think you control these things, 
You don't necessarily control your laws. Your laws um, will have, and your, your words and your works will have consequences and effects that you cannot predict. And so when we're making our laws, we need to be wary and wise. Wary because we are not actually the ones who are ultimately in control. Same with our technologies. When you invent a new technology, you don't know what effect it's, what you've unleashed in the world, what its consequences will be. And so think carefully before you start a new law. How will it play out? Um, how will it be misused? How will it be used against you? How will it gain power over you? And I think we all have the experience of thinking we're in control of something like that, that ends up limiting us or being used against us or trapping us or constraining us in some way. And so this is a warning, I think, first of all, against the hubris of kings. The whole story of Babel is about the hubris of kings, particularly Nimrod, who's this great god king who believes that he's controlling everything. He's setting up this He's the great hunter before the Lord who sets up his kingdom beginning at Babel and then at Erech and um, Asher and various other places like that. And he thinks that he's in control. And yet the danger of that is that set loose words and works within the world that can end up being destructive and powerful, but almost like gods over us. And so we fancy ourselves to be gods, but we make very bad gods in parts because in part because we cannot control our words and we cannot control our works. And they end up exercising a sort of godlike rule over us. And so within this chapter, I think we have a more general warning against the pretensions of empires. We have the same thing earlier on within the book, but I think this is where it's most pronounced. What's the symbolism of lions here throughout this chapter? So we, we see lions connected with the kingdom of Babylon in the next chapter, in the symbolism of the beasts. We also have names like Ariok that would be connected with lions um, earlier in the book. Lions then seem to symbolize the kingdom of Babylon. And we can see what happens here as a sort of symbolic exile. The people of Israel are in a den of lions. The place of exile is the lion's den of Babylon itself. And so will they be delivered? Will the Lord stop the mouths of the lions? And throughout the book of Daniel, he has. And so what Daniel is experiencing is in miniature the story of the nation as a whole over these last 70 years. And I think that's another important thing just in the numerology, that we have numbers that come up later on in the story. Think about the 70 weeks of years. There's seven years, then there's 62 or the seven weeks, then 62 weeks, and then one week that's split up. And here we have someone who's come to the throne at the age of 62. We're never given pagan king's ages. This is the only time. And then this is the first year of his reign. So this seems to be foreshadowing, first of all, of the release from exile, but also from the greater fulfillment of the 70, the 70 weeks of years after the 62 and then the final week they'll finally be released, redemption will come. And so this is reality-filled promise of the release from exile and then the greater release that will happen after the 70 weeks. To what extent are Darius's men lion-like too? They, they're certainly predators. Mm. Think about the ways that lions are represented in scripture, sometimes represented as kingly, royal, um, think about the 
imagery of the lion of the tribe of Judah. But elsewhere, we can see them as vicious predators. Think about Samson's wrestling with the lion or think about our adversary, the devil, going round like a, a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he might devour. And so I think these different images explore different aspects of the lion imagery. The lion attacking the flock of David as well, that he defeats with the bear. That, I think, is what's foregrounded here. These are predatory figures who are seeking to destroy the faithful people of God represented by Daniel. And so, as with their mouths being stopped, their attempts to, by their words, destroy Daniel and his friends, so the people of Israel more generally will be delivered from their adversaries and their mouths will be stopped. Is there a connection between Daniel's chamber where he prays, which seems to be of great importance in this chapter, and the lion's den? You can certainly see them as a, a sort of contrast spatially. So one is at the high place and the other is the low place. It's the den. You go down into the den, you go up into the upper room. And so I think we can maybe see those as contrasting, but yet joined together by that common act of prayer and seeking the Lord. The Lord is found both as he prays from the upper room, but also as he prays in the den. In what ways are uh, Darius and Daniel new Adams learning to govern these wild beasts? Daniel's been around for a while, so he's learning to be an Adam in a new situation. But Darius is, while old, this is his first year on the job within that situation. And he's surrounded by, as we've discussed, wild beasts. He needs to tame his regime if he's going to be a good ruler. And so he has the task of dealing with these wild beasts in his kingdom. And so like Solomon setting up his kingdom in the early stages, a few heads might need to roll. And this is what happens in this chapter. If it's going to be a good regime, he needs to know the hearts of the people around him. He needs to judge them and he needs to establish good rulers. And so the fact that he sets up Daniel in the way that he does reflects very well upon him. But then, on the other hand, he falls prey to this very cunning plot on the part of the other advisors, which seems to be, in one respect, we could see it as serving his pride. Another way might think it's not so much about his pride as a ploy to gather the whole kingdom together, that he is in the very early stages of establishing his empire's rule over the kingdom of Babylon. And how do you do that when you have all these different gods of worship? Well, you set yourself as the sole intercessor for that period. So you become the sort of universal priest and all the other gods are approached through you. And that seems to be maybe the ploy that he has at this point. This is the idea by which he will be able to unify the nation. Again, an attempt to unify by human wisdom, something that man will necessarily fail in. But yeah. the Lord proves his sovereignty. Yes, but in many ways, he's unlike uh, his predecessors, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Belshazzar, isn't he? Because he does show some concern for God's people and certainly a concern for Daniel. I mean, he fasts all night. It's like almost like another Passover event, isn't it? Yes, and he, he certainly is presented in, as someone who's naive about the advice of his counsellors. He doesn't really know what's in their hearts and what their intentions are and what the purpose of this decree is. It's a clever ploy because it seems like a very good political plan. 
if you were thinking as a pagan king, that's probably, it would come across as a very good plan to you. But he is a king who, first of all, seems to recognize the power of Daniel's God. He recognizes the goodness of Daniel as a, a wise man in whom the spirit of God is found. And he genu- genuinely cares for Daniel. He doesn't just recognize his usefulness. He recognizes his goodness. And as a king in his position, he needs a good man at the head of his court. If he doesn't have a man like Daniel, he's just left with the the lions. And so in some ways, you might think about Daniel as akin to the angel within the court of Darius that will shut the mouths of the lions around him. Yes. Well, who is the angel who shuts the lions' mouths in chapter six? (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm going to be like um, a Sunday school child and say, I think it's Jesus. <laughs> wonder what makes you think that. It's interesting is because Daniel is definitely presented as a type of Christ here, isn't he? Yes. And I think as we look through this, we should not have any difficulty in recognizing similarities with the story of the resurrection. The, there are many details. It's another den, as it were. It's another covering with a stone. It's the... Well, the morning overnight, the protection, the angel. But then the bigger themes can think about the way that this is representing exile, the power of the realm of the the adversary, the, the lions. And Christ goes down into the den of the greatest lion, into the den of Satan himself with death and Hades and all their bared teeth. They're all stopped. And so I think this is an image of the resurrection of Christ. And we can think about the way that Daniel's deliverance anticipates the deliverance of the nation. It also looks forward to the fulfillment of the 70 weeks of years. This happens in the 70th year. It's the first year after the 62 years of Darius's life. And so it's the final 70th year within the sequence. And then, of course, Christ comes at the end of the 70 weeks of years, brings in the fulfillment. And as he is raised from the dead, there is the fulfillment of everything. Now, that is corresponding, I think, to Daniel's release from the den of lions at this point. Mm. But if Daniel is a type of Christ, is Darius a type of pilot? I'm not sure that he's... Um, there are certainly ways in which they map onto each other. But Pilate, Pilate of course, is used against Christ by the Jews, the, who can think very easily, can relate the satraps and the other officials to the Jewish authorities that are using an official or ruler to get their way against an adversary, a rival that they're envious of. But Pilate seems to be a lot more complicit with them, a lot more. He fails in his task of executing justice. He abdicates his responsibility and just gives Christ into their hand. He tries to find some way to get out with Barabbas. He's hoping that they're going to take the decision out of his hands so that he won't have to make that. He doesn't want to deliver Christ to them. But at the same time, he doesn't want to protect Christ because he doesn't want to ag- aggravate the crowd. Darius doesn't seem to be quite that, that bad. Darius is concerned for and mourning for Daniel in a way that Pilate certainly wasn't for Christ. Yes, in what sense does that pass almost like a Passover night? Uh, with the king warriors and fasts, is that is that like a sort of or presented as a sort of new Passover style event in the book? I think you could see it that way. And we have similar events elsewhere. You can think about the way 
in chapter 12 of Acts that there is this fasting and praying while Peter is in prison and then he's released by the angel at the time around the time of Passover and then he appears in resurrection appearance type manner and so these are motifs that are not exclusive to um, places like this we find them broadly throughout the scriptures. In what sense does Daniel carry Darius through a kind of death and resurrection experience? I certainly get the impression that Darius is more, <laughs> the experience is, if anything, even more fraught for Darius than for Daniel. Yes. Daniel seems mm. quite a bit more calm than Darius, um, which is surprising. I mean, if I were in a den of lions, I imagine that you would be struggling to find anyone that was quite as worried and concerned and anxious than I was. But um, in the case of Daniel, he's he seems to be calm and he seems to be comforting or reassuring the king um, rather than the other way around. And so that confidence within the Lord that we saw in chapter three, and we've noted the way that there is a chiastic structure. So chapter three and the the three friends of Daniel in the fiery furnace corresponds with the chapter here, just as there was the figure like the son of the uh, son of the gods in chapter three. So there is the angel in this chapter. And so I think that correspondence is a significant one. And in both cases, we have confident, faithful persons witnessing to a king who in many ways is scared by the experience far more than they are. Mm. What is Darius's response to God here in this chapter? It's a very fitting response. I mean, he recognizes the Lord's authority and he recognizes the goodness of the Lord's servant. And I think that's a reminder that as we see in various other encounters between the people of God and pagan rulers, it's often through their recognition of the goodness of the Lord's people that they recognize the truth of the Lord himself. So think of Pharaoh's recognition of Joseph, or think about the way that figures like uh, Elisha being recognized by Naaman as a faithful prophet leads to him recognizing the Lord. And here I think you have a similar thing, that as he recognizes Daniel as a faithful servant and minister and prophet of the Lord, so he can recognize the Lord himself. And so in our witness, I think we should always bear in mind that people will see or not see Christ in us. And so ideally, we want to be people that bear the witness and the, the life of Christ within us in a way that draws attention to him. Last question, Alistair. If I was a preacher preaching this chapter, how would I apply it into our world today? Some suggestions. Yes, uh, I think getting back to the point about the rule, um, that's a common theme throughout the book of Daniel. Who is really ruling? And you might think that the person in the den is in the most vulnerable and weak position that there is, but the king is the one who seems powerless in this situation. The Lord is the one who's really on the throne, and he's more, accessed by the, more accessible to the person in the den than the person on the throne. And the person on the throne has found himself trapped in his words. The person in the den has proven faithful held on to the Lord's word, and now he is preserved even in the den of lions itself. And so, first of all, I'll talk about themes of the weakness and fragility and the untrustworthy character of man's word. Even the words by which he would seek to command his word, those words can turn on us. But yet the word of the Lord is faithful, and the Lord is really the one who rules, not kings. 
can also think about the way in which this is something that we can often think about practical things as very much pointing towards what we should do. Whereas I think a lot of these passages in scripture, we need to spend time meditating upon them. This is a representation of the deliverance from exile. It's a representation through that of the greater deliverance from exile that Christ will bring. It's an allegory of the conflict between the Lord and the power of Satan himself, the great lion who seeks who he may devour. And we, may we might often find ourselves facing what feels like a den of lions or a snake pit, to use another image of the, the serpent. And how do we conduct ourselves within that? And also, how do we act in situations where everything seems to be conspiring against us, where we're persecuted or something? How are we going to be faithful? Daniel, the lesson, dare to be a Daniel, is a very good one. Um, Daniel's situation is not just an individual being faithful in a situation of religious persecution. There's more going on. There's an internal coup and things. But there's not less going on than that. He is someone who's proving faithful in a situation where it would be very easy to shrink away from that. I'm just not going to pray in any way that anyone could see me for 30 days. Mm. It's only 30 days. It's not that long. And after that, I can go back to praying to the Lord. Um, that's not what he does. And so in this situation, I think we see something of an example of faithfulness. He's not trying to set us make a scene he's doing this in private in his own home they're trying to trap him they've it's a case of entrapment if they were not trying to they presumably wouldn't find him doing this this is in the privacy of his own house but yet at the same time he's committed to maintaining his faithful practice even when it would seem to get him in trouble and so often i think we can be trapped in questions of political expediency we're too concerned with what is going to gain us power or what is going to work or not work that we don't think about the primary thing which is we need to be faithful and um, the lord is the one whose eyes we need to be working towards not the eyes of kings and rulers and we may seem to lose all power i mean daniel goes from being the third in or goes from being the second in the kingdom to being in the den of lions itself and yet just as in the story of joseph and others you can have these dramatic reversals but the lord is still in control and so that confidence that we see in joseph we also see in in daniel both of them get thrown into dens or pits and both of them are brought out of them and vindicated and raised up even higher Yes, if you want a good political thriller, go and read the book of Daniel. It's fabulous. We're just getting into it, aren't we? Dr. Alistair Roberts from the Theopolis Institute in the States. Thank you so much for your time. Alistair, where can people find you in, on social media and on the net? On adversariapodcast.com. If they search for my name, um, find lots of my stuff in various places. The Theopolis podcast and the Mere Fidelity podcast as well. Um, both ideally on a weekly basis, not always quite as ideal as we'd like them to be yeah, we know what the pressure of podcasting is like and thanks to our creative team at liquid edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes alistair thank you so much for your time thank you we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the god story podcast to ensure you never miss an episode please subscribe and if you're enjoying the podcast please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review 
This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.